Hello friends, what's the crack? This week, we're lucky. This week we're lucky. I mean, we're, we're lucky every week, but this week we're lucky. We have Mike Lloyd as a guest. Mike Lloyd, Dr. Mike Lloyd, is a clinical psychologist specializing in disassociative disorders and trauma. He is also the chairman of the Complex Trauma and Disassociation Clinic based in Cheshire, England. As well as running this clinic, Mike recently left his NHS post in a community adult mental health team in Cheshire to begin work as a consultant for the Ministry of Defence, offering mental health support to serving military personnel. Prior to this, Mike spent five years working in child and adolescent pediatric mental health. And if this sounds quite heavy, and it is, we should also know that Mike is a big comic book fan, a lover of wrestling and RuPaul's Drag Race, and expressing his playful side. And we definitely get this uh, this passion of his playful side and also his uh, care and, and consideration and curiosity about uh, mental health, particularly disassociation, and what is called DID. Um, DID being disassociate, Disassociative Identity Disorder, which was formerly known as Multiple Personality Disorder. In this podcast, we cover how this condition is less a disorder and more a natural reaction to complex trauma for certain brains. Mike describes in great detail the causes of this condition, how the brain responds and how it can be treated. We also discuss common symptoms of DID, the importance of support in the healing process and what, could be, what, can, what can people do to learn more. We have left the necessary links below, including the link for Mike's clinic's website, which includes recommended reading and helpful videos featuring Mike. And we've also left a link to the Disassociative Experiences Scale document below, which is mentioned in the podcast. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you think it might be proof, if you think it will prove useful for others, please pass it on. All the best, friends. Thanks a million. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, we are joined by Dr. Mike Lloyd. Mike Lloyd, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. First and foremost, what's the crack? How are you keeping? (sighs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) apart from the fact that there's been a storm and I've been chasing ducks around the garden just after my clinic sessions finished, all would have been fine. So it's not been normal today at all. <laughs> so t- talk to me about the ducks. The, the ducks aren't usually in your back garden. Well, the the place we moved into is kind of turned into a de facto animal sanctuary. So kind of taken in, got cats, various different rescue cats at different stages of like being being good or being terribly evil. And we've got three Muscovy ducks that we've got from a rescue center that I have never kept wild birds before and they are get they get a bit wild in the storm and uh we've got this little place for them to sleep overnight so i'm trying to chase them into it so they don't get eaten by foxes overnight and they were resisting Uh, put it that way uh, so they seem to want to be out in the rain and the sleet and all the horrible weather and yeah chaos ensued do you succeed every night in getting them in the shelter yeah Every night, one way or the other, we get them in. <laughs> but, you know, I can, I can have like a calm professional demeanor during clinic sessions. 
but when I'm out in the garden, in the wellies, in the pouring rain, I lose my cool. <laughs> I guess question I'd like to ask you is how how did you how did you come across this association uh, identity disorder and how okay. did you pursue that interest and why were you so interested and kind of how did your career develop that would be cool well um none of it none of that was planned so the yeah. sort of the the finding out about dissociation absolutely not planned at all so um when I did all my sort of psychology degree and my doctorate degree, I don't think dissociation was mentioned once. So bearing in mind that would have meant that I sort of became a doctor of clinical psychology through NHS level training. No mention of dissociation present. So when I finished clinical training, I started working in child and adolescent and pediatric services. I had no idea what dissociation was. So I understood trauma and difficulties and mental health and all that kind of stuff but no dissociation on the menu whatsoever so it what happened was I wanted I was in child and adolescent services I wanted to move into adult services so a job became available in a different trust in a different county so applied for that got that job and along the way this uh, mental health manager just said to me look we've got this lady who is struggling with dissociation and we need a psychologist to be mentored to start seeing her and i just said cool okay i'll i'll do that i'm i was looking literally just looking for more hours in the adult team and i thought that would give me an opportunity to have an extra day working and i could gradually move over from child into adult services okay so that was what was on my mind and so without any introduction to it without really knowing anything other than just reading a couple of things online and finding a chapter in a book um, I met this mental guy from the Pottergate Center, so he who happened to be one of the sort of like the leading figures in the world on this stuff. So I consider myself very lucky. It's Rami Akra, and um, we just met at this lady's house, and we met her, and it was full blown dissociative identity disorder (DID), and it utterly blew my mind. And I just sort of stood there thinking, I want to do this, wow. and it was like no hesitation. I just clicked into it and just thought this is possibly the strangest um most unusual and most kind of interesting example of mental health i've ever been witness to and my heart went out to the lady and i just thought i will do whatever it takes to help you and that was it and then like 12 13 years later i'm still doing it with with the same same passion with the same interest with the same more more every year that goes by i learn more i meet new people i figure out more and more about this condition either from the books or from podcasts like yourselves or training days or just doing the job and week by week by week my mind is continually being grown by meeting people and hearing their stories and seeing their lives and seeing how utterly brilliant the brain is because all of this stuff is about the wonder of the brain and I just love it and I happen to be good at it I suppose so <laughs> it's kind of the perfect job that always helps I find <laughs> it really does Seb yeah absolutely like the passion the interest the rewards 
all laid out everything's there and i've i've changed in terms of my career path i've like t over 20 years in the nhs doing various different mental and physical health work and management work and all sorts of stuff and three years ago more or less to the day i think i my facebook memory was of me standing in my shirt that i had signed by all the members of the nhs team on my last day so i think actually 21st of february was my last day in the nhs and then since then i've been working in full-time private practice i designed and i built a clinic specifically to help people with dissociation and we've just been growing and improving for the last three years and yeah i absolutely love it perfect Be before Jim He's got about a million questions there, all more, <laughs> all more detailed than the last. Um, I just would like to set out a few, like, kind of um, set out the foundations for the conversation. So yeah. could you just kind of explain to us um, to, in layman's terms what, what you mean by dissociation? Sure thing. Yeah. I mean, the official framework is that um, uh, a lack of connection or disconnection between things usually associated with each other. So it's where you expect two things to be in the same place at the same time working in harmony and they're not. So a very simple example would be a sandwich. You expect two slices of bread and there to be a filling sorts. So a dissociation would be where you just have the bread or you just have the filling and there's no connection between those two things. So you would look at that and go, let's say if I was making you a sandwich, Jim, and I just gave you two pieces of bread, you'd look at that and go, that's not right. That's not what I call a sandwich. And if I gave you, Seb, just the filling, like some ham or some cheese, you'd be like, great, but again, not a sandwich. And someone yeah. with dissociation would look at the bread and go, that's what I have all the time. That's all I get to have in my life is that. I never get the other bit. So dissociation is where you expect something to come with something else and it doesn't. So you might have, let's say, an event that takes place in your life and you have a memory of that event but you feel nothing about it or you can't remember being at the event but you have the feelings associated with it so it's kind of like coming back from a day at the beach and being terrified but you don't know what took place like you have no memory of the beach but you just know you're scared and you speak to someone else afterwards and they say well yeah you, there's a shark swam near you and you just fled and you're like i don't remember that at all but i feel the fear so that would be a dissociation as well. You have you have a feeling and no memory, or you might remember something, but you feel nothing about it. So it kind and of sounds odd. Brought, yeah. yeah. Is that brought about, so just to just to, um, get it um, clear before we get into the, the, the details, that is that brought about through um, trauma, or can someone be born with, with uh, a dissociation order? It's more that people are born with the ability to dissociate. Okay. So it, it's, you could see it as being a built-in defense system that the brain has against specific type events because you'd have to have something. So especially very early in childhood, you have the ability to be able to dissociate to effectively get out of trouble in the same way that ducks in, ducklings imprint on the parent ducks or a fawn in the wild knows to stand up as fast as possible because it's built into the brain to survive. So because we are essentially useless for about the first two or three years of our life, the, the argument goes that the brain has given us a defense system with which to survive something really difficult or horrible happening that would be overwhelming to us. So pain or fear or stress. 
if you can't get out, if you can't escape those things, like our fight, flight, you know, our anxiety responses are useless in a one-year-old. So a one-year-old can't mm. run away and a one-year-old can't fight back. They just kind of go dormant. But if the thing is still happening to them, then it's overwhelmingly on a, on a psychological level, it would be just too much for the brain to cope with. So it has this emergency close off like a circuit breaker in the light in the house, right? The lights just go out. So the brain gives us that dissociation to get us out of trouble or stop us being overwhelmed by that trouble. And, we and tend right. to think of those sort of experiences being traumatic in nature because like say being given ice cream every day of your life you know whether you like ice cream or let's say you don't like ice cream and someone gives you ice cream you, you're not being traumatized by that it's not nice you know i don't like ice cream but you're not going to be overwhelmed by that so but, nothing would happen but if someone was say burning you every day effect and you couldn't get away from that you're going to have to have some system that makes the pain negated and the brain will be able to remove the pain from you over a period of time it's very clever and Dr. Mike, am I right in saying that there are four types of disassociation identity disorder? Because it, it, to me, I hear one, or sorry, so is it, so am I right in saying that the, the brain the, uh, feels um, unsafe or said under such stress or um, yeah. potential pain and and as a defense mechanism, the brain says, oh, it's actually not you experiencing that. Yeah. It, yeah. And you take that's kind back. of it. Yeah. So okay. it, it's, it's, it, it seems really, it's a big jump from being yourself and sort of being somebody else. So DID has that element of it's like being somebody else as a means okay. with which to sort of to close the trauma down, to close down the impact of that trauma in a very neat and tidy way. So it's all about compartmentalizing. So DID is the highest form of dissociation, if you like, the most severe. There are many, many different other levels or aspects to dissociation. DID is possibly the most extreme form of that. And it's like a compartmentalization. Um, I suppose the equivalent would be if you had a gigantic file being downloaded to your computer, but it was just too big to put in one. So it gets put into four and those four sections of that file go off into four different folders, but you're not, you only know of one. So you you think what's in your folder is all that there is, but there's three other ones that exist to carry that file because the computer has made the decision to segment the, that volume but it hasn't told you it's doing it. That's a great metaphor. That's very helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, question is, so a lot of people experience trauma growing up. Mm. Why am I right in saying that some people would, um, like you said, experience a disassociation, but not yeah. later on in life um, show stronger symptoms of disassociation? feel yeah, like it. they are several different people depending on or several different personalities in different contexts is it yeah. like you said before is it that see that if it, it is, is in a traumatized situation and if it does associate then it will like you said go into different folders and then those different personalities and then some other brains are 
um, created in such a way that if it experienced trauma and experienced disassociation, it experiences disassociation, but not in the same sense of split personalities. Do you mean, so let me get this right in terms of the question. Yeah. So that can people have dissociation and not that, and not the different personalities? Is that what you're meaning? Sorry, I, I get, Sorry, I okay. want to know why do some people experience trauma in the childhood uh, have the disassociation like the natural reaction of the disassociation and yeah. then not show and um, the symptoms as split personalities or different personalities yeah and why do some okay i mean that's this it's an absolutely brilliant question jim so i'm i'm really sad that you asked that because that's one of the things that we don't really know the the, the perfect answer for right okay. we don't we don't really understand why one person might develop a certain defense system in one way and another doesn't. So okay. you could have a horrendous childhood where there is dissociation, but it doesn't turn into anything else. So it gets kind of almost like stuck at level one of the dissociative spectrum. And other people might have much less trauma, but then develop the higher spectrum system of, say, DID. And it's we can only think that it's down to sort of the brain's natural... Uh, tendencies, its temperament, whether it's an intelligence thing, whether it's the context thing, whether there are um, the attachment systems in place. So um, let's say, for example, a person who is living with one carer and that carer abuses them and hurts them, they might only need, say, dissociative amnesia with which to cope because all they need to do is forget what's happening and then they can cope and they can just move on and they can survive. But let's say you've got two or three different people in the family and that, that child needs to sort of be different things to different people. So their attachment system requires a greater degree of complexity. I have to be one thing with my parent one. I have to be one thing with my parent two. I have to be another thing with my grandparents. I have to be. In... So it could be that the brain then starts compartmentalizing all those different relationships into different boxes for the child to almost like be a chameleon in different spaces with different people okay. so the complexity of the attachment system might be the reason why some people develop the did and others just sort of just develop a more simple type of dissociation what we do know is that if you haven't developed did let's say arbitrarily by teenage you're not uh -huh. going to so it's okay. something that is built into the development of the brain Let's say if something awful happened to any one of us, we could dissociate straight away. Like it could be a car crash or we could be kidnapped or there could be a war and we'll dissociate in different ways according to what's happening to us. But none of us are going to develop the idea if we haven't already got it because the brain is already set as a singular type brain, whereas an infant a child, the brain is still developing all the way through seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And therefore, the dissociation can be built or hardwired into that as it goes along. So all of those factors are present. Which incredibly complicated thing to try and work out. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter because you it's not something that you could do a predictive model on. Because it starts so young, you're talking about six months old, 12 months old, 18 months, 24 months. There's no research that could be done on a child who is being traumatized to work out whether they're going to be, you know, 
dissociative or not because you'd just be wanting to remove them from whatever the trauma was. So we don't really have the research facilities to backtrack. All we can do is we can go back and find out <clears throat> as much as possible, but you can't ask the person, well, you know, you're dissociating at two from what people have said. What was that like? How yeah. can we learn what that process is? So it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant question of which we, I don't know if we'll ever get the perfect answer for it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Mike, um, when we talk about these um, people who developed the idea, which I just want to clarify, some of um, us who maybe aren't as uh, up, to, up to date with the new terminology, would that be um, more commonly known as multiple um, identity disorder? Or... Uh, it used multiple to be personality called multiple disorder. personality disorder. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah. in America, that was, that was sort of the lead terminology for it. Okay. And then when the diagnostic and statistical manual sort of changed in version four and into version five, the dissociative identity disorder trumped the MPD, the multiple personalities. So okay. We, Perfect. and in a way it's good because the whole multiple personality thing, it, it just focused on a singular aspect, a singular symptom of dissociation, mm. which is that personality thing. We're mm. now more about identity because there is a difference between personality and identity and the DID thing just clarifies it better. Not massively happy with the disorder bit, yeah, because right. it's a defense system rather than a mental illness but uh -huh. you know we go with what we've got but yeah it used to be of called course. that uh, what well, the question i was going to ask is is can anyone who has developed um did through therapy and through counseling and working with someone like yourself is there a way to reverse it or once you have it is that for life and you just you just gain tools to manage it better well the the beauty of that is that it's a choice so with many mental health conditions, you sort of want to get to a position of, well, I, you know, I, I, let's say if it's, it's someone has sort of bipolar or something, you just say, I just don't want it. I want it. I want it gone. I want it out of my way. So you have medication, you have therapy and you, and it can, you can pretty much get well, all being well. With, with DID is that we give people the choice. We say, look, what's your therapeutic journey that you want to be on? Do you want to end up being a person where you don't have these other identities present in your life or do you want to keep them because you might want to keep them because they've been with you ever since you were cognitively aware <clears throat> maybe there's something good in that and a lot of people start by saying i want it all gone i just want it to be me and you go okay well because we don't have to worry about that until later on in therapy i'll just log that and we'll go accordingly and often what happens is a year or two down the line someone's saying i couldn't bear to be without this so you don't necessarily do the therapy to try and remove the dissociation we do the therapy to have people having control over the dissociation because many people that i've worked with who have gone on to live very very productive and, and positive lives still have the other identities sort of within them but they don't really do anything that makes it makes life harder for that person anymore so they achieve control so we just give people the choice and say how do you want this to go that's really interesting a lot of people probably i reckon um maybe have come to it's come into our consciousness through a film that got released yeah. um a couple of years ago i think there's two now but split i think it's called split. i'm not mistaken yeah. um and in, and in that film are you always you're never sure how much research they do and if they talk to people like yourselves and experts or if it's just all completely done for um, entertainment 
yeah. film, um, the main character who has multiple um, identities, when he changes from one identity to another, there he has no recognition of. So he'll talk about the other identities, but it's not as if he's like consciously aware yes. that he's change you know you talk to one of his identities for example as a child and then another one is kind of like this grandmotherly figure and when you talk to the grandmotherly figure it's not like he's aware that he's changed into that yeah. identity or personality or character so to speak now i'm sure that's definitely dramatized for the films I'm sure it is. <laughs> but i wanted to, i wanted to what i want to know is you know it's interesting to me that when you talk to um, when you, you talk to your patients and they say oh, i can't live without i need i need this i, I need to help me to get through yeah. life are they aware when they you know when they're using one identity or another that they've like changed or that that all that they they are using it or is it something that's just so natural to them mm -hmm. just you know that it's just oh, I'm, that's how, that's who they are in that present moment and then when they change out and they go to another identity that's just who they are and there's no kind of awareness of oh right now i'm identity yeah. one and maybe you know in a half an hour or a day i'll be identity two how does that work well i mean first of all about split i i quite enjoyed it a lot of people in the in the did community didn't i i had a fairly positive reaction to it because i saw it as a horror movie that was rooted in reality rather than saying that this is what did is like a lot of it the representation of did was actually pretty good but it's a horror movie realistically yeah. and it was all about shocks and things like that so the ending was okay but the depiction of it wasn't too bad and i think the beauty of it as, as you've done there seb you've obviously seen the film and it's made you think oh i wonder if this is is this is a correct uh representation is this what did would actually be like and it's made you think and i i wrote a, a review for ESTD, the European Society of Trauma Dissociation. So I went into the cinema specifically to write a film review of it. And I really enjoyed the right at the end when the credits had finished and people walking out, I just kind of sat and earwigged on what people were saying. And a lot of people were like, so that's DID. So you can just sort of be all these different people. And, and it's like, how does that work? And I just thought, well, that's quite nice, actually. Okay. It's not great in terms of it. It still depicts mental illness within that concept of serial killers, which is a bit of a massive trope but people were walking out of the cinema thinking as, as you're thinking and it's a really good way of looking at it because when we think therapeutically a lot of people come to us and there's all of those barriers so thinking about what i'm saying about the folders on the computer you've got those like four or ten folders and no part in any folder knows what's going on in the other folders and one of the goals of therapy is to make little bridges between those folders. So they might still be separate folders, but they are aware of what's going on in the other ones. And that is the bit that is possibly most important for people in DID therapy is so that they can still dissociate, the other identities can still be out and behaving and talking and doing things, but you know what's going on. And that's the path to being able to control it and manage it so instead of it being um, an absolute, so like, I don't know, like I like thinking in terms of images and metaphors. So that yeah. what you've got is kind of like it's playtime at school and the uh -huh. kids run out one at a time and have 20 minutes on the playing field and all the other ones are in a room with no windows. So each one then right. goes out, plays for 20 minutes, comes back. No one knows what game anyone is playing and it's just chaos, right? So it's one at a time chaos and no one's learning anything. No one's adapting or evolving or changing. Everyone just plays the same game that they play, but you could have 15 kids on the playing field playing 15 different games. It's just not very useful. 
what we move towards is like a game of football where you have a manager and 11 players on the pitch. So one person is kind of aware of what's going on, has oversight, and all the other players are functioning as a team with the goal of doing whatever it is they want to do, like winning the game or just, you know, practicing skills. But you have a manager that's kind of watching everything that's going on. Mm. So often people start like one at a time in the playground and they finish as a manager of a very successful team. Yeah. And how, <laughs> how, so, so if you're in an identity, so if you're in identity one, for example, and you do something, you go to a certain cafe, uh, yeah. you, you know, you, let's say you chat with the waitress and then the next day you happen to be in like identity two yeah. and you go to the same cafe. Are you like aware of that, that you chatted up the waitress? Like, you know, the waitress then goes, Oh, Hey, and gives you the old wink. Are you then thinking, God, that's weird. Why is she winking to me? Or, yeah. or are you aware that like in, in that you kind of, even though in another identity that you did chat her up and that's why she's winking. Do you know what I mean, how does that work? Well, I mean, it's exactly how you said it. You could you could walk into that cafe. You might never have even known you've been in there before. So you might be walking in as Seb, mm. ordering your mocha choco latte chino, whatever you're ordering. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the barista says to you, all right, Tim, how's it going? And you'd be like, Jesus. well, and that's probably how it would play out. That you you just don't know what's going on. You you'd be utterly clueless. Now, if you had the yeah. ID, you might instantly think, "Oh right, okay, I know what's gone on here." One of the others has been in here, chatted up the barista, bought a coffee that I don't like, and done one. So I'm just going to so play you... the game. I'll smile and I'll just go along with it. So so even like, and this is obviously coming from a very kind of um, ignorant uh, mind um, place, but so even like your, your your taste, which I would assume is something kind of inherent. You know, if you like celery, I feel like that's your taste buds. You know, you know, there's yeah. the thing that people say cilantro tastes different to different people based on the, the, the their DNA and, and their taste buds and so So you're telling me yep. that even like down to the semantics of one identity could like a certain coffee yeah. and then another one would only want it with oat milk, for example. Absolutely. I've got um I've got clients wow. that I work with who are vegan who have parts that will order meat based products. No and it's way. a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare for them because their taste, their their entire code of principle might be based on a thing and they could have an identity yeah. that just goes and does a totally, totally different thing. And that is entirely possible and happens a lot. And people get really upset when stuff like that's happening because they'll open the cupboards and they'll see food items that they don't like, don't want, but are being bought through their credit card or the online shopping arrives and it's got stuff in it. You're like, why have I ordered this? I don't even oh like God. this stuff. Whereas with us non-dissociative people, those yeah. those coded principles aren't the same. So as an example of mine is that when I was uh, becoming vegetarian, I was very passionate about, so I've been vegetarian for many years. I'm massively passionate about it. And I remember being out with some mates and I was absolutely I was drunk, let's say. So I was incoherent and I had no, I have no memory of this particular evening whatsoever. I was absolutely paralytically drunk with no memory of it. And we ended up in a kebab shop at probably about three o'clock in the morning and my mates were buying kebabs and the guy behind the counter says, all right, so what do you want? Like a doner kebab or whatever it might be. And I was like, no, I'm vegetarian and I'll just have the salad. So I was so drunk. I had no idea what I was doing. Don't remember any of it. 
But what I do know is that I was a vegetarian, even though I was massively drunk. Whereas someone mm. with DID, they might walk into the kebab shop as a vegetarian, switch into the mode of an identity that wants to eat meat and will buy and eat meat. Now, I know I couldn't do that because I'm not dissociative, but someone who is dissociative uh -huh. could very well do that. And it's very distressing for them. I can, I can only, I can only, I can't even, I was gonna say I can only imagine, but I can't even imagine, I'm gonna be honest. What what are the, the, the extremes of that? I mean, I'm just thinking now, like the ramifications. Okay. I mean, is, is that, does that go, does that extend to, um, to, to sexuality? Does that extend to, yep. could you have a, 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 an identity which is an alcoholic, for example, and an identity that isn't? I mean, how, like, what are the, where does that yeah. go? Because some people might say, some people might go, oh, well, listen, it's just food at the end of the day. If you're enjoying it in one identity, I know it's not that I don't agree with that, but they might say that, you know, it's not going to kill you. But if yep. you go, you know, if one, if, if, if you're an alcoholic, I'm just thinking, like, how far does it go to? So, Again, I'll just give you examples from clinical practice. So working with um, a person who is, uh, is a gay woman and will sometimes wake up in the bed with a strange man. And they've been out and they've found a man and they've gone back to that person's place and had sex with a man. But they are a gay woman, have no interest in men whatsoever. But there is a part inside who is attracted to men. And again, massively distressing and when we're thinking about some of the extremes of this you can have those kind of patterns playing themselves out with say food or with sexuality there's other stuff which is a lot darker so some people's trauma comes back from being say abused in as children and they may have moved to the other part of the country to get away from the people that abuse them and sometimes they find themselves on the train going back to that town where they're abused to try and find the people who abuse them because they're in their mind that's what they did when they were children so if they turn or switch into the identity of the child that was abused that child knows to go back to those people so they find themselves doing that and people can travel the breadth length and breadth of the country to go back to the people who hurt them again massively distressing so you can imagine that that person sort of just comes to on the train station in the town where yeah. they were hurt that they spent all their life getting away from and they look at the sign and they see where they are and wow. it, they just flip out they just absolutely just sort of break down and the first thing that all they want to do is just jump on the first train and they'll just sort of throw money at the train conductor kind of thing take me back take me back and yeah. they they have no idea why they went there they don't know how they got there but they did and they don't want to be there. So it's almost like doing the absolute opposite of what you want to do can be done. Mm. Which um, and my, my, I, I wanted to ask, how do you find the, um, I, uh, forgive me, I don't know the, 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 the um, clinical terminology here, but the right. base personality, you know, you, yeah. you said at the start that when someone comes to you, you ask them, you know, what, what road do you want to go down? Do you want to leave this all behind and just stay with who you are? Or do you want to, you know, keep them all with you? When yeah. you say, you know, stay who you are and leave the rest behind, how do you work out who quote unquote they are? Uh, largely trial and error and making colossal mistakes. Um, I remember one person, so I'll, I'll give fake names, all this stuff. Yeah. So one person who I started working with who came to me for an assessment, let's call her Claire. Um, I was talking to Claire for weeks and weeks and weeks, going through the assessment or figuring out what was going on and doing this whole deal and spent time. And then 
you know, after the assessment, recommended therapy, she started therapy and I'm like, clear this, clear this, clear this. And probably a couple of months in, she said, oh, I'm, I'm not clear, by the way. And I was like, oh, what? So who are you? And she said, okay, I'm um, Susan. And I said, okay, so where's, is there a Claire? And she said, Claire is the name on my birth certificate, but I've never been Claire. As long as I can remember, I've been Susan, but before me, there was a Jane. And Jane got us through school and I'm getting us through adult life and it's me that's found you, but we don't know, we, we, there isn't really a Claire. But then a couple of years into the therapy with Susan or Sarah or Jane or whoever I was talking to, it turned out there was a Claire, but she sort of ceased to be around the age of about five or six because what was going on in life was so awful that that Claire just got buried. And it was like, Claire can't cope. Claire cannot function. So all of these other identities took over. And Claire gradually started to emerge back through the process of therapy, but was massively chaotic. She was like a terrified six-year-old child who was suddenly coming back into this grown-up adult world. And all the other parts within that system just looked after her and sort of brought her in. And then they all made a decision towards the end of therapy, what they wanted to be called to go out into the world and then sort of start their life properly as a non-dissociative person. When you, when wow. you think that that is what I saw over a period of a few years in clinical practice, then anything possible realistically. And you, or you could have a person like Jim, let's say, turns up for therapy and is like, I'm Jim and I think I've got all this stuff going on, but I, I am Jim, I've always been Jim. But there are times when stuff is going on I can't explain. You think, well, okay, yeah, that's Jim. You know, Jim is kind of like the the, the apparently normal personality, the, the person up front and sort of in charge of things. And there's loads of other bits going on, which is chaotic, but you have got Jim. So you might have, mm. there's no Claire whatsoever. It's just the name on the birth certificate. Or there could be an absolute obvious Jim. You just got to work with whatever shows up and hope for the best. Right. Mike, are you familiar with um, Janina Fisher, the, the trauma expert? Janina, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I recently read her book, Healing the Fragmented Selves. Yes, it's on my shelf. Uh, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> she mentions for a few chapters in the book about parts theory, right? Yeah. And not this may sound egocentric, but when you talk about some of your, um, the large majority of your patients have different parts i am i right in your opinion do we not all have parts like is there not you were saying like jim is in the steering for instance right jim is in the steering wheel but sometimes yeah. richard might come out but for instance say i feel like i'm in the steering wheel but there are days yeah. where i'm a shadow of my former self yeah. and i kind of want to the covers or there are days where i want to just um run away days where i want to almost like pick a fight with people <laughs> yeah it, it, is is there is it a misconception amongst the, the the general public that we don't all have parts and that like we try to put a huge distance between us and someone with the id like as right. in we feel like we can't relate at all but do we also yeah. have parts ourselves so i'll i'll i'm a comic book fan so i'll, I'll try and answer this question in terms of comics what okay. you're so the bit that you would describe would be Bruce Wayne and Batman. Okay. So you are Bruce Wayne, okay. but you become uh -huh. Batman 
for specific reasons and you do specific things, but you're essentially one person that is playing two different parts. So the part of the billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne and the part of the, the masked Avenger at night. So that's normal, right? That's what we put on masks. So you go to work, how you are with your parents is different to how you are with your mates on a night out. So you are, you are allowing different parts of your personality to come out at different times. So that's a personality thing. With DID, it's about identity. That's more about Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk. They are different identities. They are effectively two different people existing within the same body. So DID is more like the Incredible Hulk as a part. It's a totally separate and distinct part that has its own independent behaviors. Whereas with Bruce Wayne and Batman, you'd argue even when Batman's off doing his own thing, he's still being Bruce Wayne, being Batman. Mm. Now, you would then argue, well, which one is the real person? Is Bruce Wayne the, is the, the play or is Batman the real person? And that's a whole PhD thesis in of itself. But the Incredible Hulk is much more obvious because when the Hulk turns up, Bruce Banner disappears. That's DID. That's the difference in identity mm. versus the difference in personality make an extension that with identity they almost have different memories and different histories yes. compared yeah, to that's correct and that's part of the the um the criteria by which we diagnose is one of the key elements of did is that there has to be two or more distinct personalities or sort of distinct parts playing themselves out with different identities with different histories with different behavioral mechanisms so you've got effectively two different people or two different identities existing in the same body. There only has to be one other. So it could be you and one other to make DID. So there's a lot of stuff out there about people having dozens or hundreds or thousands and things. That's all fine, but you only ever need one other. Mm -hmm. So if there's you and there's another part that is totally different to Jim, has its own behaviors, has its own history, if you like, then that would qualify for a, a DID type diagnosis. Just to unpack um, about diagnosis, you mentioned that we ha that there has to be at least two distinct identities. Yeah. Are there other like what are the other means in which um, we can diagnose someone? Okay. Like, so what's the other? The, yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, to start with is the exclusion criteria, so that. The, the, the symptoms that are being witnessed are not part of a medical condition, let's say a head injury or um, dementia, for example, or they're not part of, because you can have something like Korsakoff syndrome, which is sort of like would make people forget stuff or behave in lots of different ways. And that's related to alcohol. So you discount that not under the influence of drugs. Um, and there isn't any other basically medical or physical reason why a person might be doing that. So a person could be um, behaving very strangely and appear as if they have like different identities, but they could have a tumor that's leading their behavior to change under different circumstances, depending on the swelling of the tumor. Right. So we discount all of those things. Um, it can't be part of a sort of a religious or culturally based behavior system so you wouldn't want to diagnose did and let's say in someone who has a religious belief system that their ancestors are part of their world and that they share their space inside the lines with their ancestor ancestors and that they are space to a variety of spirits for example so you wouldn't want to diagnose because that's part of a, a culturally accepted context so you, you know we'd accept that um, and there has to be a level of distress 
that is involved. So the symptoms have to be significant in the way that they get in the way of someone's life. So to what degree is it preventing things from happening? So the intensity, the frequency, and how long these symptoms have been occurring for. So these are all the primary reasons why we diagnose. What we're not saying within the diagnosis is it has to be related to a specific type of trauma. And this is one of the misconceptions about um, dissociation and especially DID is that you have to have had, say, let's say sexual abuse in childhood. If you haven't been sexually abused in childhood, you can't get DID. It's a misconception. It's simply not the truth. So our diagnostic criteria is that these symptoms have to be present for a long period of time, frequently and consistently, have to involve the split of identity so that there has to be at least one other part. Um, it can't be under the influence of alcohol, drugs, or other medical reasons. Um, so these are sort of some of the, the key factors we look for. And the other bit, which is the, the final bit, which has shifted over the last couple of years, is that you've got to be able to witness this. So in the old days under the DSM-4, the diagnosing clinician had to visibly observe and witness dissociation taking place, which was a tough one because someone could ex someone could describe all this stuff, but you didn't see it in the clinical setting, and therefore you didn't diagnose it. What we're able to do now is use corroborative evidence from trusted other people. So as long as a person who is trustworthy is saying that they've seen all this stuff and it's all being consistently narrated to us in a way that makes sense, then we can diagnose by having that conversation with the trusted other people and then seeing what it is that they are witnessing. Because it's often not safe for someone to show that level of dissociation within for, to a total stranger, like you rock up to my clinic, we do an assessment, I wouldn't expect you to show me all the parts, right? Because it's very intimate and very personal and it's not like controlled like that. But if let's say you have a social worker that you've been working with for five years and that social worker has seen it day in and day out, I can have that conversation with the social worker, get all the evidence I need from them. And then the very last bit is to make sure that there isn't secondary gain, that you're not using it as safe to get off a criminal case or you're looking to gain fame or uh, money, you know, by by doing something like, let's say if you, you know, wanted to join a club that you couldn't join unless you had DID, and you came to me and you said, oh, I need a diagnosis so I can get into this club. I'd be like, no, that's not going to happen. We, we, we don't work like that. Mm. So there's all of this stuff has to be present when you're making these diagnoses. It's pretty complex. And when you get someone into, um, they sat down with you, I don't, the, the thing that I still I understand is, you know, we were talking about the example of, I might go into a cafe, order yeah. a cappuccino and, and try and hit on the waitress and then the next day i go in and i'm tim i don't even re remember that i went in yesterday as seb and i order a completely different drink and I, the waitress winks at me and i don't understand why she's winking at me yeah. but then we use that as that's an example that can happen but then in your we use the example with claire how she um you know she was saying you were talking to claire for five years and then she said oh no i'm susan claire was just someone who's got me through childhood but i'm susan now and yeah. how so how do you have on the one hand someone who is has no idea that seb went into the cafe yesterday and ordered a cappuccino but then on the other hand they have that awareness to be like oh yeah that's seb he got me through 
mm, yep. my teenage years or oh yeah he's rob he's my really sporty guy and but is that does that only come from people who telling you so in this case the waitress might be like oh do you not remember yesterday and then i'd have to like cotton on and kind of draw the links how do they gain that awareness well just like that i mean it depends how many how many people they've spoken to over the years um how aware they are like some people from the early stages are quite aware that other identities are present and some are completely not so within the 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 categories of dissociation the primary category that we look at is this thing called dissociative amnesia and that determines how much a person is aware of the things that are going on in their life and simply put some people with did have massive levels of dissociative amnesia they have absolutely no idea what is going on from one day to the next so these are the people that walk into the room and have no idea why they walked into the room and don't even remember why they've got these clothes on or packages are arriving in the post containing children's toys or coloring things and they don't know why they've got them they don't want them they don't remember buying them but they're on the credit card statement so huge levels of dissociative amnesia other people much less which means that they are aware they might not be able to control it but it's like watching it through a screen so if you imagine it's like i suppose the difference is some people are, are just passengers on the bus where they fall asleep and they arrive at the destination and they get off and they don't know how they got there but they don't care they just get off because that's one of watching the road learning the journey and you've uh, you've got a whole mix simply what usually happens is people come with those barriers in place and then therapy is about reducing those barriers so that they gain greater awareness sometimes people just turn up with really good awareness and it's lovely to work with them they sit down and they go okay this is going on this is going on i think it's did um people have said that they see these things and i'm sort of aware of a whole load of stuff but i don't really understand the mechanisms of it and i can't control it but i'm aware of a lot of it and you go down one sort of therapeutic route with them other people are saying i'm possessed or i'm I must be, you know, I'm being controlled by some sort of government agency because I'm doing these things and I'm absolutely lost and I don't know what's going on. And you can spend the first year of therapy helping them accept the diagnosis of DID and explaining what it is. So, and I think that's when you were saying at the start about how fascinating and how, how brilliant in a way this is because you've got all of those things can be present. The brain is capable of achieving all of those different levels and it's a being... A detective to work out where is this person at where do you need to get them to go next and yeah. you can have all of this stuff mapping itself out between sessions so one time this person might have great awareness the next session they don't even remember the last session that you spoke with them so it's a total mixed bag and I know a lot of um, <clears throat> other therapists who, who focus in other fields um, they uh, will even take on a patient who's come to them of their own volition. Right. Um, ha ha when someone is lacking in awareness, um, how do they find you? Because they don't know, you know, they can't, they don't know what's happening. They don't know change. How do, does it, do they then come about finding you? Because do you, or, or would, and would you take someone who maybe their mother has said, listen, Mike, I, I think my son's, you know, really struggling and I've read up and it could be that, would you be yeah. open to that? Or how does that happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's some what happens sometimes is um, people have a sense that all is not right. 
that they they may come with say a PTSD diagnosis and because we we run we have a trauma clinic they come to us for PTSD from a car crash and we work with them for a couple of months on the PTSD side of things from the car crash but then you start to see all these other presentations and you sort of go you know I know you had this car crash like 18 months ago and everything but I'm kind of interested what happened elsewhere in your life like what's what's the rest of your life like you know who were you before the car accident and they go I, I i don't know i don't really know anything about my childhood and then you go okay right that's odd you should and the fact that you don't tells me that there's some amnesia in place it's not a head injury thing because you weren't injured in the head injury you've never remembered there's something strange going on and you start seeing you you read the symptoms and you see the presentation of things other times yeah someone just say you know what i think my kid is um, behaving strangely, they've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or bipolar or schizophrenia or they've got an eating disorder or they're self-harming but, and no one knows what's going on and no one can make sense of it. And I instantly go, well, this is probably my field then because if everyone else has looked at this person and made different decisions and they've got many different diagnoses and they've been bouncing in and out of the health system for the last 12 years and no one's got a handle on what's going on, they should come here and have a chat with us because I think I might know what's going on from that presentation. Mm. Another piece that's that just like, say that again, sorry, Seb. Sorry, do, do you see that often? I just I imagine a poor soul, like, you know, who's struggling with this and they go in yeah. with the best intentions to see these professionals. And of course, the professionals are only doing the best that they can with the skills that they've got, but yep. are diagnosing them with, you know, like you said, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and so on. And then, you know, you always hear people when they get diagnosed something, it, in one way it's a massive relief because finally they can put a label on it and they can then yeah. start to tackle how but i can only imagine you know do, how traumatizing it must be for them to think okay cool finally i i've got a name yeah. for it it's bipolar disorder and then it takes them 10 years or however long to then find out actually it's not as did is that yeah. something that you see fairly often far too often i mean that's it's, it's oh one of the gosh. saddest parts about this so i'm not sure whether it's actually informed research or whether it's sort of general anecdotal acceptance but as long as I've been working in this, we've we've had this kind of magic number seven, which is sort of how many diagnoses a person gets in psychiatry before DID. So very rarely do people go from the real normal world into the GP to us and gets DID. Usually when we do the assessment, we're picking out all these other diagnoses. And often it's exactly what you described. So someone's been diagnosed with bipolar. They've been prescribed lithium. They've been on it for five, six, seven years. It's made absolutely no difference at all. The symptoms are continuing. So someone says, well, it's probably not bipolar then. I think it's schizoaffective disorder. And then the person gets unhappy and saying, this is ridiculous. Ah, it must be borderline personality disorder. But because you don't eat properly, you've also got an eating disorder. And we also think you might have autism because you don't seem to understand what's going on. And that person is just playing, playing ping pong with health systems where they're just going bats and forwards and bats and forwards. So they, they go back to the GP. The GP is like, I don't know who else to refer you to because I've, you've kind of, you've gone through everybody and everyone just discharges you because nothing is working. The medication doesn't work. The therapies don't work. It gets worse. The symptoms persist, but Hey, you happen to live in Cheshire and we've got this service that the NHS contract in Cheshire for this complex trauma and dissociation why not take a punt, go and meet with this guy? And they contact me, the GPs contact me. We have service agreements in Cheshire for this sort of work and the GPs get in touch and we do some work. We have a chat, we refer, we pass information across, we bring the person in, we have a conversation with them and 
I kind of lay out here's what we are thinking is going on and the person starts smiling and they go that's exactly it or I say I know I'm just wondering as a yeah. guess does this happen to you and I might describe a certain behavior or certain occurrence and they go how could you possibly have known that and it's like I just say because I've seen many people in your position that have said this happens to them the fact that it's also happening to you tells me a lot and then you just spend time we don't do 20 minute consults we spend hours with people to to achieve a diagnosis and yeah a lot of the time not always but a lot of the time when people get it the relief in their face is is tells you a whole other thing they're, they're saying finally someone has given me a label that describes my life that describes my experience i can work with that but yeah it's it's a my I mean, it's a mess sometimes. What people have to go through before they arrive here is an absolute mess. And we record this. So we, we take these service measures. We ask people to fill out questionnaires saying, what have you gone through in the, the years prior to arriving here? And then after we've had them in therapy for a year, we say, what's the last 12 months been like? And we do a comparison of those two data sets and we hand those back to the NHS and go, see, your, your money has been well spent because this person is no longer being admitted to psychiatry. They're no longer taking the medication. They no longer go to A&E with self-harm. Their GP contacts have dropped. They're on the cusp of being discharged by mental health services. And we're just giving them an hour a week of therapy. And it's made this difference in 12 months. And I've published that data and it's fantastic because it's so obvious. You think, why, does, why is not everyone picking this stuff up? There seems but to it's be really sad a, what a people have to go need. through sometimes. This is it. There seems to be a dire need for education around disassociation, even yeah. in the mental health world. Like, oh yeah, I remember yeah. Janine, Janine and Fisher mentioned in that book exactly what you were saying. How so many of these diagnoses from bipolar schizophrenia, they're ignoring the fact that so many of the symptoms are almost direct consequences of disassociation. Yes. Absolutely. It's just, it's obvious. It's so obvious. And we, I think we're, um, we're, we are beginning to see the emergence of this awareness in, certainly in the NHS. But I mean, I teach on the Liverpool doctorate clinical psychology courses, but it's still not in undergrad level. So you have to be a specialist to get the, the basic information that in our brain is this dissociation, which anybody can access depending on what's going on. But I speak to mental health nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists all over the country, and, and the, the level of awareness is massively varied. Not... <laughs> don't be depressed, right? We, we, we are improving it. We're getting there. And this, this helps, right? What you're doing yeah, is a direct consequence of, of us realizing that there needs to be more information. And this is why this is so wonderful. Yeah. For someone who's, um, who doesn't live in Cheshire, maybe, and, you know, um, or to stop them going, like you said, being ping-ponged around the NHS services, wasting both their time and the NHS services time. Are there any, like, I don't know, some key symptoms that you would say either for them to look out for or for their family members to look out for, or even if a GP's listening, for a GP to look out for that would, like, could kind of steer them more directly towards a clinic, your own clinic or a clinic like yours, rather than coming to you as a, as a last resort? Yeah, I mean, memory is the memory is the starting point to most of this. The, the the first thing that people start describing is a messy memory. 
So it's it's beyond forgetful. It's like, you know, when you put the keys down, you walk away, you come back, you've lost your keys. But you can't think, where the hell are they? You go around the house, you find, and then you eventually you, you find them and you go, oh, yeah, I remember putting them there. And then you think you're a doofus because you put them in that silly place. This is like when people are saying, no, 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 the keys got moved. Like, I know I put them in the key on the key hang, you know, the peg. And when I came back, they were in the fridge. And I did not put them in the fridge, but there they are in the fridge and I live alone. And it's when someone says stuff like that, maybe not the fridge, you know, but when things are strange and the person is not just being forgetful, they are genuinely looking at you going, I know I did not say that. I know I didn't order that coffee. I know that thing that someone's saying doesn't happen. I'm always getting into arguments about the truth. And I, I, I just end up, I just give in now. I just, so many times people say to me, well, that's not what you said. That's not what you did. And I have no idea what they're talking about. So I just give up. It's things like that, that I want the GPs to listen to and go, okay, that isn't a necessarily a referral into the memory clinic for um, sort of an assessment of uh, dementia, for example, like early onset dementia. That actually is a strange thing to be happening to the person of this age. And then you go, well, okay, I know a bit about this person. I know that they've had a difficult life. I know they've been in and out of mental health services. I know they struggle, but they're sitting here calmly. They're not crazy. They're not mad. They're calmly describing to me stuff that doesn't make sense. It's that that I want people to, then you stop and think, okay, it's likely there's some trauma in this person's life. They've had a tough life. They're sitting here calmly describing things which shouldn't be happening. I think I need to assess this. And the beauty of this is that we have these screening tools, which is self-report measures. There's a couple of screening tools, the best one being the dissociative experiences scale. 28 point measure takes about 10, 15 minutes to complete. It's free to download. We've got it on the website and you can get a scoring tool, which is again on the website. You just literally count up the scores. And if you score over a number, which we've set at 30, chances are something's going on because a non-dissociative person would never score above 30, but a dissociative person does. So you think, well, okay, I, I wonder what's going on. You'd have this form available. You hand it to the person, they fill it out, you score it about 40, 45. You think, okay, then this person needs to be assessed for dissociation because something is going on. So I don't see why that can't be done as a standard thing. The person could be filling that out in the waiting room while they're waiting for the appointment. I mean, it's an easy thing. It's free. It takes no time whatsoever. It's easy to score, but it gives you a definitive answer straight away. And then, you know, what we do now is, I suppose, because we're we're not expanding our operations as such, we're trying to meet demand is that commissioners, NHS commissioners from all over the country are now getting in touch and saying, we've got these people and we know you have this service in Cheshire, but we're in Scotland or we're in south of england or in south wales or whatever it might be is that how do we access your service and then we spend time talking to gps and commissioners and work out referral pathways either to get it done locally so we put a little bit of pressure on say that you know you can help this person maybe you just need a psychologist or someone in that service who can be mentored like i was all those years ago get someone in the service locally who wants to learn then you can not just see that one person you can see a dozen or refer them over to us. We'll assess them, and then we'll give you a treatment plan. So we're we're working on these things, but it's yeah, early days. Um, Mike, are you one of the only services, or the only service in England that does this, or are there some no. others that people 
could access it. They, you know, they're not living near Cheshire or. Yeah, we've got. I mean, the the main one is the Pottergate Centre, which is over in Norfolk. So that's the one that started a lot of this the work. And so, because I've been mentored by Ramy over at the Pottergate Centre ever since I started, so our, the, the model okay. of the CETO clinic is very similar to the Pottergate, and we work very closely and we share thoughts, ideas, and strategy. Um, the other one is the Clinic for Dissociative Studies in London, which is an NHS-only referral system. Um, that's run by Valerie Sinnocent, and that is again, it's a well, it was run by Valerie before she retired, but it, she's she's kind of like the sort of the um, the main person within that. Um, and the, I think it's us three realistically. Most other things, it's either NHS, which is really hit and miss, and it's a massive, massive postcode lottery, or it's just individuals just putting their flag up and saying, "Yeah, I'll do this work." But we're the ones, us three, and we talk regularly and we liaise with each other. We're involved with expert by experience groups like First Person Plural, and we are trying to engage the NHS um, in every way possible to skill up services within the NHS mm -hmm. so that pe more and more people can be helped. Um, yeah. And we're trying to put, we're trying to help with sort of uh, nice guidelines and referral pathways and training. We do loads of training, we do loads of awareness. Um, there's people out there like Carolyn Spring that's doing some fantastic work raising awareness in this and she's brilliant at doing online tutorials and things. So there are these pockets, but yeah. until the NHS realistically grabs this and operationalizes it, it then we need to be doing this work because otherwise there is nothing for a lot of people. Mm. And is this something that you find is uh, like you said, there's only three in the UK. Uh, is that something that you find is kind of representative of worldwide that is very, very, or are there some countries potentially are like really leading the way and that you, we, you know, you, you can take the NHS could take real um, inspiration from? Well, Australia and the United States lead the way in the guidelines. So the Blue Knot Foundation in Australia is fantastic. And the ISSTD, International Society for the Study of Trauma Association in America, leads the way in terms of research. So people like Janina, people like Bethany Brand, Richard Lowenstein, they're all part of um, ISSTD. And they are very, very um, uh, groundbreaking in terms of the research and the stuff they're putting together. And they are wonderful, wonderful people. But... I still get contacted on a weekly basis by people in the state saying there is no one near me that can offer this therapy. I go to my primary health care providers, I go to my insurers and they have they just shrug their shoulders and go, can't help you. So every country we've had Portugal, people from Portugal, people from Japan, people from Singapore, people from Germany, Ireland, great deal. We have loads of people all over the world contacting us and saying, now that everyone's doing online therapy, I finally got the chance of getting some help. Can you guys help us? And we are swamped. We are absolutely swamped from all over the world with this. And is stuff. it something that you can do online? Yeah, we've been doing, um, I think we've been learning and we've been working better online as the last couple of years have gone. We always did a bit just because it was suitable for some people because of like physical health problems like disabilities and stuff. So we were working with people, but now everyone is much more tuned in to working online. People are happier and people are more comfortable with it. So we're doing some really great work online. All therapies are, I've just, and again, this is not a, uh, this is a massive plug, but it's a coincidental one. So today a book got published on delivering the digital mental health treatments by a good friend of mine, Hannah Wilson, and I co-wrote a chapter in that book about um, using online therapies for DID. So that literally right. got published today. 
Um, so it's out on the market. So blah, 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 21st of February. And that is going <laughs> to, that's part of a resource for helping us learn how to be better practitioners using Zoom, Skype, Teams, whatever we're using. But we've had to get better at it. And lots of people are getting really good at this. Mm. This fantastic news, Mike. And this, this makes us appreciate your time even more. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, I, I mentioned I do have a few more questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, happily. Yeah, I'm fine. Perfect. Um, one thing I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on is is the idea of that there being like a hierarchy in, in the mental health world, in the sense that certain mental health quote unquote conditions are more socially acceptable than others, right? So yeah, yeah. there's a lot of advocacy around mental health. But often, if the symptoms include something that's quite inconvenient or what some would describe as rude or, you know, pl put in the adjective, then, there, then there's less compassion and less understanding. Yeah. I guess, is that what a lot of your patients have found that there isn't, because obviously it's hugely stigmatized. And I guess maybe you could plug in a few more of uh, the potential misconceptions around disassociation, but I guess the hope from this podcast is is for people to understand what's going on for that person and for it to be more kind of um, acceptable yeah. and okay for people to express their difficulties. Is but is that yeah. something that has kind of do you think has halted the progress of some of your patients? The fact that in society there's so much judgment when there's not fitness brilliant researcher called Bethany Brand wrote a paper a while ago about sort of six common misconceptions or myths about DID and you know one of those is about this violence and aggression thing is that and things like films like Split and Fight Club and things like that um, you know kind of build that sense that you know you could have this violent part and there are there are parts or identities within many DID systems that express violent thoughts or aggressive thoughts because they this is a person that's been treated violently and treated aggressively and yet, if you go into mental health services and you behave in a violent or aggressive way, you'll be labeled as something else. It's not just that you'll be asked to like calm down, is that you get this slight, and again, this is a bit of a generalization because it doesn't happen everywhere, but it happens enough that people will then immediately get hit with personality disorder uh, diagnoses because you're kicking off a bit. So something's happened and you've become different or strange or a bit menacing or a bit unhappy or a bit unpleasant and then suddenly bang you've got a personality disorder diagnosis and even if it turns out a year later that actually what you had was effectively a battle dog type halter like a, a part who comes out under threat and is kind of like rah you shall not hurt me kind of thing once you've got that personality disorder diagnosis even if you get did given to you then like two years later it's really tough shifting yeah. personality disorder diagnosis People get stuck mm. and labeled with that and then often excluded from services as a result of a diagnosis they sh probably should never have been given in the first place. So we do see some of those problems occurring from time to time. I think the other one, which is a tougher one, and that's the society's aversion to really wanting to get involved in the narrative and the conversation around childhood abuse. 
that mm. the NSPCC and Bernardo's have been publishing data for years to show that actually the treatment of children in this country is becoming worse on a year-by-year -year basis. So there are more wow. cases of neglect, there are more cases of abuse being reported to these services wow. year after year after year. And then we look at stuff like human slavery and there are more slaves in the world today than there ever have been in the history of the planet. And you think that these are people that are being trafficked, they are being met, they are being treated as slaves, they've been treated as commodities, not just the refugees, but these are sexual slaves trafficked around the world for the purpose of basically prostitution. And it's a very difficult thing for society to accept that that is going on here mm. in the UK on an endemic level. So, you know, we'll get very worked up about COVID because we've seen this as being this really terrible, terrible thing. And it is. But behind the scenes of this, what we've got is institutional levels of abuse within the United Kingdom, within every country. And that's a hard thing for people to talk about. And DID often comes from those people. So when we hear the histories and the stories of people that have gone through this and the truth project that was recently published sort of will attest to that. And you hear the stories of what people have gone through. It's horrific. And that's a tough thing for people to want to know. And you can see it, you know, when like if I'm at a dinner party and I'm chatting with friends and there's people there that haven't met before. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a clinical psychologist. And they ask a bit about that and they go, oh, I do work with DID. And then they sort of say, where does it all come from? And I go, I just, let's, let's just not talk about it because we're just here to have dinner and you really don't want to know because it's mm. just going to make everybody really depressed and unhappy mm. because it's serious level stuff. You don't have mm. to have that to get DID, that level of trauma, but we see it a huge amount. And the, you know, just the stories that I'm witness to on a day by day level in my clinic are awful. And when you people don't want to know that stuff. So you've got this, it's an odd condition. It seems weird. It seems a bit science fiction. It seems a bit fantasy. It all seems too weird to be true. And then you're saying it's because of like sex trafficking and pedophile rings and all this stuff. And people just like, nah, that's not really going on in the world. And you go, well, it is, you know, Operation U-Tree, you know, we know that this stuff is going on and it's going on at all levels of society. It's been published. It's been proven to be the case. But, you know, it's tough for people to really get their heads around. And I think, you know, we've got society's got to adjust properly for this to really work itself out. I have a hunch, Mike, that it's potentially kind of a per unwillingness to look at their own shadow manifested collectively, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the inconvenient truth side of things, isn't it? It's kind of like the dairy industry is that we don't really want to know what goes on in there. We just want to drink the milk. And, yeah. you know, we want to, we want, I think it's human nature to want to think the best of things, to want to go through life and see, see what's on the surface and think that that is, that's the truth of life. And actually underneath the surface, it can be really rough for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and this isn't stuff that people make up. You know, when they come forward and they start talking about these things, they're not making this stuff up. It's just too horrible to make up. But it sounds so odd and sounds so dark. But And I think that's that, that's that difference. When they're working with DID and we're sitting with people who are dissociating, when someone is dissociating in front of you, 
and the hairs are standing up on my arms and I can feel my heart increase. This isn't sitting with an actor doing, uh, you know, an improv class. You're dealing with you're dealing with somebody who is fundamentally on a physiological basis. Their chemistry, their brain chemistry is changing as this dissociation is taking place. It's palpable. You can genuinely feel this taking place. It's hard to hard to get across. I mean, it might sound like this is the weirdest thing in the world, but you know, you, if if any of if either of you type guys sort of sat down in the clinic room and just watched a session where someone was dissociating, you'd walk away from that and thinking there is no other explanation for what I just witnessed yeah. than dissociation. That's it. There's nothing else. Mike, for, for people listening, so I have two questions here. For people listening who have loved ones with either yeah. diagnosed disassociation or um, with symptoms of dissociation, what yeah. would you say? Uh, well, I think you can get, you can, let's say, if they're thinking this is what's taking place, get hold of one of these screening forms and see if you can get it filled out. Either you fill it out on behalf of that person in terms of what you see or see if you can get it filled out. Because you can do a lot of good for that person if you've got the awareness. If you're willing to, let's say if there is a diagnosis to be had, that is what that person is experiencing. It isn't something else. There's an awful lot of good that family members can do. And that's kids, that's brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, and things like that. The support around that individual is huge if they can get it so i think if, if it becomes a family narrative that this person is dissociative and you're willing to sit with whatever reason it is that that took place in the first place and don't judge and don't label and don't be unpleasant you know just disbelieve and i don't want to know there's a f massive amount of good um we've done we've done some um produced a couple of videos alongside first person plural in the pottergate center and there's a chapter in there from a guy who we interviewed who is married to someone with DID and he just talks about his life experience of what it's like to, to live with this person and how difficult it is for him and how important it is to continue trying to have this sort of like good relationship with the person. So I just think get involved, right? Lean into it like anything else. Just try and overcome the natural barriers and the defenses and the, the, the judgments and just lean into it and go with it because there's a lot of good you can do to help that person. Thanks, Mike. And um, for for people who are listening and who are struggling with disassociation, what yeah. was, was is there anything else that you would say that you haven't mentioned before? Uh, jump on my YouTube channel and have a look because um, so much of that is is designed specifically for that person. Right? They're out there. They're on their own, and they're struggling. They probably know that they dissociate. They they don't know where to get good quality information from. And the whole reason I put that channel in the, up in the first place was to try and educate people and give them some techniques with which to manage. So there's that, right? But ultimately, it's about going and having a chatting with your healthcare provider, your GP, and if need be, going with that scoring form, we'll just go in and say, look, I think you know stuff's going wrong. I can't really explain it. I, I need to be able to speak to someone, to not be afraid to go and ask for help. Most folks with dissociation also carry a lot of shame. They carry a lot of guilt. Um, they blame themselves. They're hiding and they're keeping so much of this a secret and they're just desperately 
hoping it doesn't leak into their lives. It might affect their jobs, their driving license, their relationships, their kids, whatever it might be, is try not to be afraid of all that stuff and go and ask for help. Because um, it is there and you just might have a bit of a fight to get it, but do, right? It's definitely worth it. I think just sitting with something like this on your own and having no help just is compounds whatever has happened in your life. It's this isn't something to sit and deal with on your own. I, I listened to an interview yesterday with a woman who um, was diagnosed like 25 years ago. And right. I thought it was powerful, powerful what she said. She said that she said, it's so much easier to co cooperate with these identities than to reject or neglect them. That's brilliant and, advice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even even if you have alters parts identities that you don't like, I I I sort of start just saying tough. Just work with them. Again, back to that football thing. A successful football team isn't eleven friends on the pitch. It's eleven people on the pitch that know how to work as a team. And yeah, if you have these other identities, pushing them away. The worst thing that anyone can do is say, "I want to get rid of them all," because you can't. It ain't going to work like that. So the best thing to do is look. I can work with them. I don't have to like them. I might. I mean, it's good if you do, but you've got to make peace with that and cooperate, collaborate, and communicate is the is the trick here. And that's what we always start with. It's work out how to build bridges between the, the, the parts, the alters, the identities, so that you can collaborate. If you just if you don't like each other and you're at war with each other, you'll get nowhere. It simply doesn't work, so don't do it. So I love what that person says. That is absolutely spot on. Fantastic. Thanks, hey, Mike. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And oh, no, it's great. Go, I, I could talk to you guys for hours. <laughs> well, it, we, we could do a four-hour one next time if you want. <laughs> In blocks, though. Four blocks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. four blocks. Four blocks. <laughs> um like it's it's amazing the work that you're doing imagine oh, how many you. days it's taxing we would love to know how you take of yourself take care of your own mental health cool we go. well i've i've been i've lived in the shadow of mental health all my life so my mum's got amazing mental health problems so i've i've kind of just developed a good ability to cope around mental health so i've been doing it ever since i was a, i was a baby so i think i have an inbuilt ability to be okay with this stuff which certainly helps the rest of it comes down to messing up being a child so i am a big kid i love comic books i love watching wrestling i love watching sci-fi and fantasy I love being with my wife and just mucking about and dancing and just being silly. I love my cats, my rescue cats and my silly ducks. And I just do stupid stuff. I mean, I just, I'm very impulsive and I throw myself into anything I'm going to do. And I just love, I love projects and yeah, being silly is a big deal. So my friends know that I'm, I'm super, super on it at work, you know, but outside in the real world i'm just i'm just a big kid kind of like wandering around in amazement at everything that's going on wondering how i got here and loving every minute of it so that helped that's absolutely great that's so unique and great and actually um jim oh, i forget the name but we, we're getting on a guest to talk about play aren't we and the importance of play we have um, yeah jill in next week is coming out i will i will listen to that 
yeah yeah it's <laughs> it's it's the best and and in trauma work people don't know how to play they weren't shown how to play so we do a lot of play there's a lot of fun work in therapy it's not all dark and you know serious stuff we we have a lot of time enjoying ourselves and people come away from therapy sometimes laughing sometimes crying but some a lot of the times laughing because it's, it's so important to to have yeah. that so yeah i love that i look forward to listening to that podcast that sounds fantastic it's great listen we're gonna put all of the links um the links to your youtube page obviously for anyone who wants to find some more information the links the to your screen yeah, the yeah. book um, and, and the links as well. You said you could download the um, the, um, the screening processes, didn't you? The forms. Yes, they're all on um, the website. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put all that there for anyone who uh, wants to find it. They'll all be in the show notes. Um, so just check right. that on whatever um, app you're using to listen to this right now. Um, and without further ado, Mike, just thank you so much. You're blowing my mind. Into <laughs> um, <Thank you. laughs> but thank, and I'm sure to all of our listeners as well. But thank you. Uh, it's been absolutely incredible. Oh, thank you both very much. Really appreciate your time.